Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're going to be continuing on in our series on the life of Jacob with James Jordan. And here, Jordan's going to be at Genesis chapter 35, and specifically, he's going to be looking at God's reiteration of his promises to Jacob, Jacob setting up a pillar in Bethel, and what it means that he poured oil and a drink offering on it. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you for listening. And here is James Jordan discussing the life of Jacob in Genesis chapter 35. Genesis 35, back up a tad. I'll start in verse 9. This is after they come out from Salem, Shechem, and get rid of their gods. And Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and we talked about that last week. And now we finally arrive at Bethel. Verse 9, God was seen by Jacob again when he came back from the country of Aram, and he gave him blessing. And God said to him, Jacob is your name. Jacob shall your name be called no more, for your name shall be Israel, and he called his name Israel. And God said further to him, I am the mighty one, Shaddai, bear fruit and be mighty, nations, yes, a host of nations will come from you, kings shall go out from your loins. The land that I gave to Abraham and Yitzchak, to you I give it, and to your seed after you I give the land. God went up from beside him at the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a standing pillar at the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a poured offering on it and cast oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, House of God, or House of the Mighty One. If you look back at this section, E, E prime, got down there, word from Yahweh, 35, 9 to 15, it matches the word that God brought to Rebekah at the beginning when he said, what is going on? These babies are struggling in my womb. What's wrong with my stomach, in other words? And God said, there are two children in your womb and two nations will come out from you. Well, now we have the same statement. Nations are going to come out from you. And immediately after that, in the first E section, we have the birth of the two sons. And immediately after this message here at Bethel, we will have the birth of Benjamin. So that's the parallels there. The other way of outlining the passage, this appearance of God at Bethel, this whole section, 35, 1 to 15, corresponds with the first time God appeared at Bethel in chapter 28, 10 to 22. I've got that in bold faith so you can see that these passages parallel each other. So that's the structure and that's the links. We're coming to the end of this story and certain things are happening again, but in a new way. And... Verse 10, I mentioned last time, we actually, in Hebrew, we have a nice chiasm that Fox doesn't give us and the most translations don't, but it actually reads, your name is Jacob, not will be called your name any longer Jacob, for now Israel will be your name, and he called his name Israel. So, not only is there a chiasm with these different words matching each other and phrases matching each other, but the first half we have Jacob and the second half we have Israel. Now, as I mentioned, this has already happened at Peniel, but the name takes a new meaning now. God has said at Peniel, your individual name as a human being is Israel. 
because you wrestle with God. But then we saw in chapter 34 that there's this beginning of the use of the word Israel for the company of people. That when Dinah was attacked, the sons say, this should not have been done in Israel. Implying that the name now begins to have a national name. And here, it takes it up very clearly. Because as soon as God says your name is Israel, he explains it and says, nations and kings will come out from you. Also, this statement your name will no longer be called Jacob can't be taken in an absolute sense because, again, as we saw last week, just to review, God does address Jacob as Jacob later on and not in some negative sense. It's not that Jacob means Jacob as bad and Israel means Israel is good. Rather, in Genesis, the word Jacob has a primary focus on him as an individual and Israel has a focus on him as the king of a people, as the leader of a nation, a proto-nation, the beginning of a new nation. So that's the difference of nuance. You can just put it real simply and say Jacob is priestly and Israel is kingly. Jacob, in his priestly phase of life where he's obeying and learning wisdom, he's called Jacob once he becomes in charge of a group of people and the sons are grown. His name is changed to Israel. You could do it that way, too. There's nothing we can nail down and say it's simply X equals Y, but in terms of general meaning, that's what it is. The first early part of life, the later part of life, and particularly an individual as opposed to a nation. Well, we were at verse 11. God says to him, I am the mighty one, Shaddai, and from in the past we've looked at this, El Shaddai has the connotation that God is a giver of life and one who makes promises. Later on, the name Yahweh is given, which means the one who keeps the promises that were made earlier on by El Shaddai. But because Shaddai has the connotation of power, and El does too, it's not Elohim, God, but El, Mighty One, it's because God is mighty and powerful that we can trust His promises, it's because He's mighty and powerful that He gives life And when this name shows up, it's almost always in the context of making promises about children, life, who is coming. And here it is again. I am El Shaddai, bear fruit and be many, lots of kids. Nations will come from you. But before, at the first Bethel, back in chapter 28, God comes to him before he has any children. And he says it this way. And he actually comes to him and says his name is Yahweh the God who is keeping the promises made to the Father. We have to always put this in chronological sequence. Here is Shaddai, and he makes promises to Abraham and Isaac. When we move along through history to Jacob, God says, I'm Yahweh, I'm keeping these promises that I made to Abraham and Isaac. I made promises to them, now I'm going to keep those promises with you, Jacob. So, there you are, the God who keeps promises, Yahweh. Then he comes to Jacob later on, whose name is now Israel, and he comes again as Shaddai, and he makes promises to Israel. And he promises, you will become a nation, indeed a company of nations, and you will have kings. And we come down to the time of Moses, and God reveals himself as Yahweh, who keeps the promises. So, Shaddai makes promises to Abraham, Yahweh keeps those promises when they come to Jacob. Shaddai makes promises to Israel. Yahweh comes and keeps the promises when we get down to Moses. You see how this works? 
It's really in terms of when God is appearing and in terms of what he's done and how he's confirming it. So I think that's really quite helpful in understanding the themes here. And what he says to Jacob, who is not yet a king or a leader of a nation, here in chapter 28, the first time, he doesn't have any children yet, he's all by himself, he says, The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your seed. Your seed will be like the dust of the earth. You will birth forth to the sea, to the east, to the north, and to the south. Negev, all the clans of the soil will find blessings for you and for your seed. That's it. To you as an individual, you'll have lots of sons. So we just have a promise that there's going to be this amorphous mass of descendants. That's to Jacob before he has any kids. Now the kids are here. And he says it a different way. He says, nations and a company of nations, organized political, cultural unit, not just a group of people, not just a bunch of sons who may go here and go there, but something more like what we think of as a nation will come. So the change of language is important. And he says, nations and assembly of nations. There's a host of nations here, but that's unfortunate because the word host is Sabaoth, and this is the word Kahal, which means a gathering together. And the great gathering is at Mount Sinai. I don't want to do this, but if you study it up, the prophets refer back to the great assembly at Mount Sinai. In fact, the book of Hebrews refers to it when he says you come to the general assembly. That's the Greek equivalent to the same word. The nations assemble together at Sinai, and that is the place where this is fulfilled, a company of nations, a company of tribes. And then he says, and this is where we stop, <laughs> review only takes ten minutes this week. Kings will come forth from your loins. Now that's new. Nothing about kings to this point. So the king theme is starting to come in here now. They're going to have kings. And see, Jacob already has all of his sons, right? All the sons have already come forth from him. So this has to refer to someone in the future, or does it? What's the next thing that happens in this story? Has Jacob already had all of his children? No. What's the next thing that happens? Benjamin is born. Kings will come forth from your loins. Is Benjamin the king? So all came from Benjamin. Now we're getting answers from behind me now. Yes, the first king of Israel came from Benjamin. And so you see how close this is in terms of the prophecy and its fulfillment. Not only that, but in the Joseph story, of course, Joseph actually winds up being the leader in the family. But remember when Benjamin comes down to Egypt and Joseph is really become an Egyptian, he gives a five-fold portion to Benjamin, which is the sign of royalty. If we were to study it, this business was five. If you take an ox and kill it that belongs to somebody else, you've got to make five-fold restitution. And the ox is a symbol of a national leader. And so to give Benjamin five-fold is to ascribe power to him. The number five has to do with the fingers of the hand. And to ascribe rule to him which is part of what Joseph is doing. Let's treat Benjamin like a king and see if these brothers are jealous of him and try to kill him. That's his test that he puts before the brothers. But Benjamin then starts to take on this kingly attribute. Of course, as Genesis comes to a close, we find that there's a prophecy that Judah will become the king. And so after Benjamin is king, Judah is king. After Saul is king, David becomes king. And he's the permanent one. 
But right away we can see that the prophecy has a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. Prophecies in the Bible always have a near fulfillment. A small, near fulfillment that is a down payment for the big, distant fulfillment. The distant fulfillment is Jesus Christ. And the mid-range fulfillment are the kings of Israel. But the immediate fulfillment of a king who comes from his loins we can see in the birth of Benjamin, which is the very next thing that happens. You see, it's no accident that these things have this concatenation in the text. So, think of that. And also notice how we are really moving into a new... You know, God has brought Jacob through all these things and wrestled with him, and now a nation is being formed. And the nation has already fallen into sin, and it's almost destroyed except that they repent and put away their idols, and so God gives them another chance. We saw that the covenant and everything that God had been doing was almost wrecked when they murdered their brothers at Shechem, their circumcised covenant brothers. But now there is some repentance, and the rest of the book of Genesis will be concerned with working out that repentance. Remember, we looked at that. Judah has to learn how to deal with the Canaanites the right way. The brothers have to learn not to be murdering their own brother, Joseph. They have to stop being brother murderers. Because that's what they've become. They've become brother murderers. They've become a whole bunch of Cains. And they have to repent from being Cain and stop murdering their brothers. So that has to work its way out in the rest of Genesis. But, by the way, we're told, here we're told, nations will come. So we're moving into what it means to be a nation. Perhaps it'll be good to, before we depart from Jacob to throw all that together a little bit and say, okay, what does it mean? Eventually it's going to mean you have law. To prevent brother-brother strife, you have to have objective law. Otherwise, you have clan feuds and brothers murdering each other right and left. So you have to have strictly enforced objective common law that applies to everybody. And that's what we're moving towards when we get to Moses. We're on the way there. Well, now, verse 12, we can actually move on. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, to you I give it, and to your seed after you I give the land. There's actually in Hebrew a nice little, again, a palistrophic form here, chiasm. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, to you I give it. And you have land and seed. Land and seed always go together in these promises, along with the name. These are the three things that God promises throughout in Genesis. And let's just camp there for a minute or two. Let me remind you of where this starts. In chapter 12, 1 to 3, this is the first form of it, and it sort of sets the stage for all the reiterated promises in Genesis. God said to Abram, Go forth from your land, from your kindred, from your father's house, to the land I will let you see. I will make a great nation of you. I will give you blessing and make your name great. Be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. He who curses you, I will damn all the clans of the soil will find blessing through you. Three things here. Land, a great name, and children. The children thing is more implied here, but all the clans of the soil will find blessing through you implies it. And of course, it comes up later on as these things are expanded. Well, this is basically Trinitarian. There's a shadow of the Trinity here in what God is promising you know, are manifestations of himself. To promise seed is to promise the Son. 
offspring, which is something that has its analogy with the Son of God in the Trinity. To promise land is to promise the context where the Spirit operates. Spirit operates in a certain sphere of activity. That's why when the Spirit appears in the Bible, he appears as a cloud. And that means an organized geography of angels or people around God. When it says we worship in the Spirit, it doesn't mean we worship way deep down inside. And it doesn't mean we worship invisibly. When Jesus says those who worship God worship in the Spirit, he means they worship in the church. They worship not on this mountain, but in the Spirit. Well, where is the Spirit? The Spirit is in the church. He is forming the bride. So it's not an invisible thing. You know, me and Jesus alone with the Spirit. But first and foremost, it's worshiping in the place where the Spirit gathers the people together for worship. You can also by yourself, but the primary focus, do we worship on this mountain? The Samaritan woman says, we worship on this mountain, you worship on that mountain. Jesus says, no, you worship in the place where the Spirit is, and that place is where the people are gathered. So the Spirit has to do with place. And the New Testament fulfillment of this promise of the land is the gift of the Holy Spirit who creates the church. And we are the land. And that's easy to understand if you look around. What are human beings made out of? Dirt. So the church is all the clods of dirt in the Holy Land. We don't need to think about Palestine. Throughout the Middle Ages, they had the Holy Land they got a rescue in. Our dispensational friends today still think that that Holy Land is special and it's a promised land. But no, the promise is fulfilled in the gift of the Holy Spirit and we are now the land. We're pieces of dirt. Dust has been made alive. This is the land, each of us. We form the land when we get together. So the Holy Spirit is ultimately the promise here. And then, of course, the promise of a name and of reputation takes up from the Father. The Father has the glory. The Son gives all the glory to the Father, and he says, I will make you a great father. And your name, Abraham, great father. That's his name. I will make your name great. And what is the name? The name is Father. So when we pull back, because what does this mean to us? Does God come to you and me and say, I'm going to give you property, and I'm going to give you children, and I'm going to make you famous? Well, no. You may never, as a Christian, own any land at all. You may never have any children. And you certainly may never be famous. Most of us are not going to be famous. We won't be famous as fathers. So what does it mean for us? What is the practical meaning of this for us? How does it apply? And the answer is, God is giving Abraham himself. He's giving Abraham himself. He's given Abraham himself as father. He's given Abraham himself as son. He's given Abraham himself as Holy Spirit. He's given Abraham sons to show that the son is there. He's given him land, showing where the spirit is. given him fame showing that the Father is with him. What that means for us is that God gives himself to us. And that's reiterated here. We went back through that to say, we don't need to think, oh, this is very interesting history. God said that he would give them land, but we can't just say that God is going to give me a house and I won't have to rent anymore. No, when God says, I'll give you land, what it means, now he's given us the church. We get to be in the church where the Spirit is. We get to be in the land.
We get to have children, even if you don't have any biological children, even if you never marry. Your life is influential on the lives of others, and so they become your children. So any influence you have on others is a parent-child relationship, and God promises that we will have that kind of influence if we're his people. We will have children. And God also promises that our name will be glorious. The book of Revelation tells us that God knows our name. It's a secret name, and he's got it up in heaven. So here on earth, we don't have a glorious name. In fact, we have to be careful not to seek glory. But God says he is reserving our name, and it will be glorious. So the promises are still basically the same. At this stage in history, it means real land. And it means real children. And it means a real famous name. I've changed your name to Israel and from now till the end of time people are going to read about Israel and the Israelites. It's right here in the Bible. So that's the promise. And the specific change in the promise is not just a bunch of children but an organized nation. Now we read in verses 13 to 15 afterwards God went up from beside him at the place where he had spoken with him that going up to cause the ladder to heaven in chapter 28, where angels were ascending and descending, it's the angels who brought God near, and now the angels convey him back up. I mean, that chariot, that cloud chariot in the Bible is made up of angels. So if God, if Shaddai has come near, I think probably, I wasn't there, and nobody videotaped this, but based on the rest of the Bible, it's likely that something like the chariot in Ezekiel chapter 1 is what actually came to Jacob on this occasion. What actually happened when it says Shaddai appeared to him? God was seen by Jacob again. What actually happened? Well, if I was going to make a movie out of it, I'd show that ladder to heaven and then the chariot would come down with its wheels and its flaming sword and the angels all around and there would be this man-like figure in it, in the chariot, like Ezekiel sees and that would be Shaddai, and he would talk to Jacob and say these things, and then the chariot would go back up, just like it does in Ezekiel. That's probably what happened. Acts chapter 7 says, The God of the glory appeared to our father Abraham. Emeritus Klein suggests that means the glory, cloud, theophany, all these angels and wheels and all this stuff, chase faces the cherubim, that all appeared to Abraham the first time. Big event. We don't actually find out what it looks like till we get to Ezekiel chapter 1 and then we read about it and we see this chariot. But something like that happened. I mean, it was a real miraculous happening. I think that's as close as we can get to imagining what would have happened. And so now God has said this and God goes back up. He travels back up the ladder and Jacob again, as he did before, sets up a pillar at the place where God had spoken to him, a pillar of stone. Stone has to do with hardness. God is called the rock. A stone is going to be there a long time. And he poured out a libation on it and cast oil on it. So he consecrates it. And the pillar with oil moving down on it, as we said before, has something to do with angels ascending and descending on this ladder. What's different this time? In Genesis 28, the first time this happened, at the first Bethel, Jacob took the stone that he had set at his head, he set it up as a standing pillar, and poured oil on top of it, 
and he called the name of the place Bethel. However, it was called Luz in former days. So we have a pillar, and we pour oil on it. This time, we set up a pillar, and we pour out a libation on it, which means wine, and we cast oil on it. So what about this additional step of putting wine on it? Well, let's see if we can approach that. I didn't put anything down in my notes about it, but I think I can explain it. First of all, the pillar not only represents the ladder to heaven, but also Jacob himself and the oil coming on it represents God's blessings coming upon him, and that's what it meant the first time. And here, this pillar is also going to represent him, and wine poured on it, as well as oil, I think represents not only the blessings of God, but also since wine is associated with kingship in the Bible, it's appropriate for his new status to be given wine. Wine has to do with rule and kingship, and so to put wine on it is just like after the flood when Noah is given his kingly rights, then he plants a vineyard and drinks of it, which has something to do with his kingship. Similarly, in the promise to Judah, in chapter 49, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the staff of command from between his legs. He ties his foe to a vine, his young colt to a crimson tendril. He washes his garments in wine, his mantle in the blood of grapes, you wash your clothes in wine. See, if the stone represents Jacob, to pour wine over the stone is to pour wine over Jacob. And now, in terms of kingship, we have the statement, he washes his clothes in wine. So if you have clothes, a white garment that's been washed in wine and made red, and you put it on, it's just like wine over stone. You're dressed in wine. So he dresses the stone in wine. It's a royal stone. Kings are going to come from you. It represents him and the nation. Oil comes on it, representing the gift of the Holy Spirit and the promises God has just made. With Judah, Judah will dress in wine. He'll dress in wine-colored garments. And what is the color of royalty in the ancient world? It is wine red. And we say purple, but you know that purple in the ancient world is closer to what we think of as scarlet. It's not the deep, dark purple that we think of today. It's wine-colored. So, for the king to dress in wine-colored garments, garments that are dipped in wine, is the same as putting wine on here. So, what is added, the first time he puts oil on it, that's the blessing of the Holy Spirit, these blessings that have just been given. He's like the ladder to heaven, and God has put the oil on him. Now, this time, kingship has been promised to him. He's been given a kingly name again. And he puts wine on it, kingly things as a symbol of that, that he accepts it and puts oil on it as the blessing of God. In verse 15, Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken to him, Bethel, house of God. This time, the place where God appears to him, where the pillar is, is called house of God, house of the mighty one. The altar built earlier was called the mighty one of the house of the mighty one. El of Bethel, that's in verse 7. This duality anticipates the configuration of the tabernacle, the ladder to heaven, and the courtyard altar later on, 
Well, the altar is where God's presence is always visible in the sacred fire. Okay, let's just draw it, and we'll understand it. We have this altar here, made of stones, and that is called El of Bethel. The Mighty One of the House of the Mighty One. So this altar is somehow a manifestation of God's power that is at the house of God's power. Then over here, we have this pillar, which is called the house of the powerful one. So we have the house of the powerful one. We'll draw a house here. And then we have the mighty thing of the house of the mighty one. Now, what this is, is just like the tabernacle, which has at its heart the throne of God, and when we studied it before, I showed you the tabernacle symbolically is a ladder that reaches up to heaven. Everything is stair-stepped in there, moving up to the Ark of the Covenant, which is at the top. And so, this pillar reaching up to heaven is like the tabernacle, which is the house of God, Beth-El. The tabernacle, the tent, with the holy place and the holy of holies, is the house of God. It's the house of the mighty one. And right outside in the courtyard is the altar, which is where God's fiery presence is always manifested. And here, the altar is called the strong thing or the mighty one of the mighty one's house. The strong thing of God's house. That's what it's called. What would that mean? Well, the altar is the open public manifestation of what is hidden in this house. You can't go inside the tabernacle and see anything. So the manifestation of God's power and might and glory, the glory cloud, is manifested on the outside. If you want to see the glory cloud, you can see it every day in Israel. Any Israel who wants to can see the glory cloud any day. All they have to do is go to the doorway, of the even if they're unclean and they can't go inside the tabernacle courtyard, they can stand at the doorway and the curtains are pulled back, the opening curtain, and they can see the altar, and they can see the fire and smoke on the altar. That's the glory cloud of God. Because that fire was lit by fire that came out from God Himself, and it manifests His presence. Now, to be sure, God isn't actually in that fire. God is in the tabernacle itself. But that is a visible manifestation of it. So if you want to see, if you're in Israel, and you wanted to see the fire of God, you wanted to see the cloud of God, all you had to do was look at the altar, and you could look at that. It was behind curtains, but the curtains were pulled back in the doorway, and you could go in if you were going to offer sacrifice, but even if you were unclean and you couldn't go in, you could stand at the door and look in there, and you saw fire and cloud. So there you are. It's there. So it's the public manifestation of God's power and presence. So the altar is called the place where God's power and presence is manifested, and the pillar is called the house of God. I just want to make sure that I'm covering the details in the text that seem important because this is anticipating something here. And we're always moving forward here. Earlier in Genesis, Abraham builds altars. Abraham doesn't set up pillars. Isaac digs wells and he builds some altars, but he hasn't set up pillars. Abraham builds these altars as a place of worship. But that's as far as it goes. When you get to Jacob and you get this kingly emphasis and this national emphasis, 
you start putting up pillars and you call the pillars a house of God. In other words, a palace. Well, what this grows into is the tabernacle, which is the palace where Yahweh sits enthroned. And here's his hearth out here with the fire on it. And so once we move into this kingly zone of concerns and we start to become a nation, then we're no longer just going to an altar and worshiping God with a fire, but we're also setting up a pillar which signifies God's palace in our midst, that he's the high king. And that's important. Because if Jacob is going to be a king, the first thing the king needs to understand is what? That there is a higher king. What our presidents tend to forget. Certainly the one we have in the White House now doesn't seem to understand that he's only a vassal of the true king of kings. But the moment Israel becomes a nation at Mount Sinai, they build a palace for the king where Yahweh sits enthroned above the cherubim. Just like a king sits on a throne with a lion over here and a lion over there. You know how thrones are. You've got nice stone lions. Maybe some real lions. Or if you're a king in Louisiana, you've got an alligator on either side of you to scare off people who want to approach the throne. Well, the Bible, you got cherubim. They're pretty frightening looking things. you got cherubim on either side of God. His throne, the tabernacle. If you're going to be a nation, you got to have a king. Yahweh is king. When David becomes a king, David has to admit that there's a king above him. And so when God's throne comes into the city, what does David do? He takes all his clothes off virtually, dances around like a little kid in front of it because he's saying, hey, compared to him, I'm just the court jester here. I dance almost naked in the street. And of course, Saul's daughter despises him for it because she doesn't understand that David is affirming Yahweh as the true high king. And that's what David says to her. He says, don't you understand this is for the Lord? He's the true king and I'm only his vassal. What I'm getting at here is the moment God comes to Jacob and says, hey, you're not Jacob anymore, you're Israel. And there's going to be nations and there's going to be kings. Well, what do you got to do? Well, we're going to have to affirm God in a new way. Up till now, it's been enough to worship Him. He's our Father. We have an altar. We worship Him as our Father and as our God, as the one who makes promises to us. That's been sufficient. But now, if I'm going to be a king, I have to add to that the fact that He's the King of Kings. And whatever kingship I have is under Him. So now, when we get to Jacob, and we get this kingship emphasis, we also get the symbols of God's supreme kingship. And you can see this. I mean, what is at the top of the ladder to heaven? God enthroned. Now that's a revelation to Jacob. Abraham doesn't see a ladder to heaven with God enthroned because God is not making Abraham a king. So Abraham doesn't need to relate to God as the high king. I mean, I don't either in a sense. I'm not a king. But if I were a king, I'd need to be reminded of who the real king is. Abraham is just an ordinary Joe. So, he relates to God as his father. Jacob, we get down to the Jacob story, hey, kingship is coming into view. And if you're going to have God as your king and you're going to be a nation, then you need to understand that there's a ladder and he's at the top of it. There's a pyramid and he's at the top of the pyramid. You're not. The human king is not at the top of the pyramid. He's on the second row. You're going to build a house of God where God is enthroned. And he's manifested at his altar. The altar takes on a new meaning. It's not just a place where we worship God. It's also a place where the king's power is manifested. The true king. You've got to understand these things. 
You've got to have these things firmly in mind or else you'll wind up like King Saul or any of the other bad kings. Instead of remembering who the ultimate king is, instead of bowing the knee to him, instead of dancing before him, instead of respecting his altar and saying, yeah, when I see that altar, now that reminds me that I've got some power, but he's got all power. The altar is a mighty place. It reminds me as king that I'm secondary, that my kingship is secondary to his. So that's why these shifts are taking place. Not just some accident that Abraham builds altars and Israel builds pillars. Because the pillars are adding something to it. They're adding this throne palace aspect. You've got to set up God's palace before we set up ours. Someday, it says nations are coming from you and kings are going to come from you as well. Get ready for that by making sure you set up my palace and we know who the real king is. So that's what's being added. And that's what the altar comes to mean. Altars grow in their meaning. For Abraham, it's a place where we worship God. Now the altar is still a place where we worship God, but it's also the place where the king's power is visibly manifested. So you don't forget it. We're going to leave this pillar behind, but everywhere we go, we're going to build an altar. The altar will now take on this additional meaning of reminding us, hey, we're going to be kings, we're going to be a nation, but Yahweh is our real king, and this is the place where his power is manifest. And it is because this fire here that consumes things. You kill something and you put it on here, you're making an offering to your king. We're going to stop right there. Because the next section on the death of Rachel is so important that we don't dare start plowing into it. I need to reserve it and try to do it all one week. Of course, it's the next thing that happens is we have this first king who is born, Benjamin. And the mother dies giving birth to him. So this business of the mother has to die when the king comes into the world is important. Come right down to the New Testament. When Jesus comes and becomes king, Israel has to die. They have the destruction of Israel in 87 because the mother's work is done, Rachel's work is done. This passage, though, gets very badly misinterpreted. Once again, we hear that Rachel was this self-centered, poor old woman, and when she gave birth to Benjamin, she said, Gee, I feel so bad. I feel so sorry for myself. Oh, son of my sorrow. Miss Pity. No, we're going to rehabilitate Rachel. I don't think Rachel is dying in self-pity here at all. That's not what that means. It's much more significant than that. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.